0: to go before the Lord offering a prayer of intercession for one another, for our own lives, and the kingdom of God on this earth. Will you pray with me? Uh, our Heavenly Father, we delightfully come before you in grace and truth, calling upon your name as your own children, as we have heard just a few moments ago in the scripture reading. We, O oh Lord, are your sons and daughters. We come thus humbly before you, asking of our needs. We pray, O Lord, for our own civil government above us. We think of, O Lord, the mayors that are within the townships around Troy here, where Providence Press is located. We lift up, O Lord, Mr. Noon, Mr. Raisavi, and Mr. Miller as they they lead in their administrations, uh, Troy, Edwardsville, and Collinsville, and the other mayors, O Lord, within our vicinity as represented in our congregation. We pray, O oh Lord, that, that by through these administrations that you would impress upon them the word of God, the, the immortal moral law of, the, uh, of your scriptures written even upon their hearts as well as all of our hearts. O oh Lord, we pray that by their rule there would be true justice and peace within our townships. We also pray, O oh Lord, for the ministry of the church. We think of our own denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, our own Presbytery, Ileana Presbyterian, the General Assembly that will meet within uh, about a month, O Lord, from even now. We pray, O Lord, that you continue to bless the Presbyterian Church in America, that you continue, even after 50 years of service, O Lord, her flourishing, her future, her ministry. We pray that the church would continue to grow with, throughout our nation, but also, O oh Lord, through our agencies throughout the world itself. We pray for Dr. Brian Chappell, our stated clerk. We pray that you bless his family even on this day and, and that you calm our administrative committee's anxiousness as they plan a historic 50th year of ministry in our denomination. We pray, O oh Lord, that there would be another 50 years, that you would sustain the church of the Lord Jesus Christ as found in the Presbyterian Church in America, and that you would continue her mission well, that you would keep us, O Lord, united, doctrinally, relationally, but also with great reminder in the mission that we are called in the Lord Jesus Christ to make disciples to the ends of the earth. We pray, O Lord, for this great church, that you continue to bless it in its ministry. We also pray, O Lord, in this same regard for those who are lost throughout the world. We think of those, O Lord, who are deceived by false religions. We think of Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and the many, many, many other pagan philosophies and religions throughout our world who have been deceived away from the truth of Christ. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would even now soften their hearts to the gospel, that you would reveal to them the errors of their own ways, and that you would use missionaries and ministers to preach Christ, O oh Lord, to the ends of the earth, convincing even the hardest nations of the truth that is found within the gospel and the gospel alone. We pray, O oh Lord, for those who are lost. We pray that their, those in these religions, their their influence, O oh Lord, would would diminish, and in that diminishing nature, O Lord, your church would triumphantly pursue those who do not know you. We also pray, O Lord, for our own ministry here at Providence Presbyterian Church. We think of our Sunday school ministry. We think of our children, youth, and even our adult ministry as we continue to grow in the discipline that Hebrews chapter 12 talked about preventatively, that as we sit under the instruction of the Word, as we said under the preaching of the Word, the teaching of the Word, that we would be convicted of our sins and drawn to Christ. We pray, O oh Lord, that our our church, through its Sunday school ministry, would grow closer to Christ in both knowledge as well as in our own hearts and lives throughout all that we are. We pray that we would be conformed to Christ Himself. And we pray, O oh Lord, for those who are struggling among us, whether it be of sin and rebellion against you whether it be of physical health we pray O oh lord for all who are struggling within our congregation we pray for those O oh lord who may want to be here but are unable to be here we pray O oh lord for your sustaining grace as a great reminder for all who are ailing whether it be by broken relationships and families and friends whether it be by sickness we call upon you to intervene by your grace within our own congregation here. We pray for all of these things, O Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Our, our scripture reading for our sermon this morning is found in the book of Philippians. I invite you to turn there with me. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3. <clears throat> these verses this evening continue... Uh, Paul's testimonial that he started last week, as we were reminded, that all of Paul's works were counted as a loss in the kingdom, or in his own life, and in vain, and that the only thing that he could gain is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, we see that in the midst of that gaining Christ, that Paul is charged to press on, to press on in the works of Christ alone. It is a great encouragement, Philippians chapter 3, as we pick up in the second part here in verse 12. Stand with me then as we hear the reading of God's Word. We'll start in verse 11 because it provides adequate context and go through till verse 16. Philippians three eleven, That by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead... Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to that, to what we have attained. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. In my junior year of high school, I... Visited uh, the YMCA camp in Estes Park for a youth retreat. It was like your typical youth retreat that you would go on. There were all sorts of fun games, all sorts of crazy music and messages. We could do all sorts of things on that compound. There's this game that we like to play called Nine Square, where it was kind of like volleyball, and if the ball dropped in one of your squares, you were out for the rest of the game, and someone else would come in to replace you, and the goal was to be the king at the center. But there were all sorts of games. We would go mini-golfing on this campus. We would go to the local shops in Estes, Estes Park. We would hike around in freedom on the campus. We did all sorts of things as you'd expect uh, at a youth event. But there there's one thing out, out of all the options that seemed to be, in my opinion, the crowning jewel of such an experience in Colorado. And that was the opportunity to hike up a mountain and to make it to Hallett's Peak. It was just the title would allure any passerbyer, I want to stand on a peak, Hallett's Peak. But what I did not realize as I accepted such a call and got on the bus early that morning with my sandwich packed and my meal prepped was the laborious nature of ascertaining such a goal. I didn't realize the type of hike I was Reasonably fit, as I I was in high school, but I was not prepared for such a hike. Five miles up, five miles down, switchbacks back and forth all the way up. I, in my own pride and zeal, thought it would be wise to stay with the guide, knowing that the guide had made that hike hundreds and hundreds of times, was perfectly equipped and able. I decided to stay with the guide, and I was often out of breath. I remember as the trees got smaller and the glaciers got bigger around me of, of the difficulty. It was hard. And I remember often when I would look back how alluring the base of the mountain seemed. Rest, peace. I could get back to my own dorm and go to sleep, which is what I did after I made it to the top and back down. It just seemed, as I looked back, what a grave mistake I had made climbing up that mountain. It would take three or four hours to get up and only a couple hours to get down, but it was an exhausting trip. But I remember that as I was going up, that it, as I kept my mind on and my eye on the prize, you could see the peak in the distance, it would spur you on, it would encourage you. Those who were hiking around you would come alongside you and encourage you, come on, just a few more minutes and then we can take a 15-second break. They would spur you on and encourage you. They would encourage me to get all the way to the top of the mountain and to enjoy the great prize that was there. But what is the prize that Paul spurs us on to in Philippians chapter 3? Well, verse 11 reveals the prize. Paul, in this entire passage, spurs us with the image of a metaphor of running, of completing a race that is before us and receiving the wreath. But what is the prize that Paul cherishes? It's found in verse 11, that I may attain the resurrection of the dead. The prize that Paul stirs the congregation here today is to pursue that prize, the resurrection life. That is what every one of us is on a race towards, and that is what we must keep our eyes on. Upon, But what is this resurrection life? What is this prize? It is, yes, physical resurrection that there is a future day in which after we die we will be made alive again. Perfected, completely righteous, morally transformed, eternal life, bodily, physical resurrection, life with Christ. That is the resurrection life. It is a life that is free from the taint of sin and the sinful creation around us. It is a prize most desired. And it is the prize that we have our eyes on in this life as we march forward, as we run the race that is before us. But Paul is no perfectionist. He realizes he is not perfect in this passage. And there are temptations in the Christian life to look back, to look back at the life before we were in Christ, to look back upon past successes, to look back on past pains and to think, should I even continue? We can get distracted in this race. And so Paul reminds us that a life seized by Christ presses on towards everlasting life. That is the call. That is the purpose of a passage. A life that is seized by Christ, a life that has made Christ's, presses on towards everlasting life. How does this happen? How does a believer press on towards everlasting life well in the first few verses we see that we press on by the power of christ that i may that i may by any means possible obtain the resurrection from the dead but if you go on to the second half of verse 12 because jesus christ has made me his own what is the power that 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 paul uses in order to continue the race it is not his own power it is not his own willpower his own ability he is pressing on towards the, to the goal, towards the prize, towards resurrection life by the power of Christ himself. He is the dynamite in, in Paul's step. He is the pep in his step. He's what keeps him going. It is not what Paul has eaten that day. It's not even perhaps Paul's own piety. It is Christ himself. It is Christ that made Paul his own. You see, Paul in this passage doesn't have a presumptuous spirit. That is a a spirit that assumes that he is saved. He's not presumptuous. He says in this passage that I have not obtained resurrection of the dead. I am not perfect, but I am seeking to press on to make it my own. He is seeking by the power of Christ to make salvation his own because he himself is not confident. He's not presumptuous of his own salvation even here. It's, it's a sense of humility. And Pilgrim's Progress, one of my favorite novels, I impress upon you all to read it at least once or perhaps yearly for the rest of your life, Presumption. Uh, there's a presumptuous character that presumes God's grace, and he presumes God's grace falsely. Sometimes Christians can believe that, well, since I have Jesus, I am always in God's good favor. I'm always in good standing, but this is the reminder that even Paul, in his own humility, doesn't presume that he's doing everything right. He doesn't presume that everything is good. Even that he is even saved, he, he, he doesn't presume God's grace. It's a reminder that the believer isn't to presume. This isn't to say, you might say, well, Scott, that sounds like I can't know if I'm saved. This isn't to say that he doesn't have confidence. He's confident that the Lord will save him, but he doesn't presume God's grace at every moment and every decision that he makes. He understands that there might be times of difficulty and that in those times he has to turn back, as verse 12 says, to Jesus, the one that has made him his own. Only by his work can he press on forward. That is the great promise that Paul has. It is not in his own work. It is not in his own presumption but in the Christ that is before him. There's a strong metaphor in this passage about running the race and running it well and making sure that you keep on pace and keep on track. And in impu- pep in his step, it kind of reminds me of what gets me going in the morning. And if I start any day off right, it is with a cup of coffee. If I get out of bed, I just roll out sluggish. Uh, the first two things I grab are are my Bible and my coffee. The kids don't eat until I have at least one of those things, and it's not the Bible, it's the coffee. And if, if you know me, that's what gets me going. So what gets me moving forward in the day. I know I have goals today. I must wake up, get ready, come to church, preach a sermon and so on and so forth, rest in the afternoon. But I, have a, I, I need a gravity, I need a dynamite to get me going, and that is coffee. Uh, when I wake up, coffee, after sermon, coffee, after lunch, coffee, you, you get it. I need coffee. But I always need more coffee because it's never enough. It's the great addiction of the American mind. We need coffee. Well, well Christ isn't like that. He is fully enough. He's fully enough, and it is by his power and work he enables you to continue the race, to continue on in this life. Whether you are a young Christian that has just started the race or been running the race for 60 years, he is by the same power you continue on, and you continue on well. If you notice, Paul here reminds us that he is not perfect. You are not perfect. We already know that. But sometimes Christians, as we talked about last week, can misunderstand their role in salvation. Sometimes we can believe that God opens the door for us and we're just charged to walk through it. But but Paul is reminding us that it is by Christ's work and Christ's work alone. Before Paul even starts the race, it is the work of Christ to make him his own. Christ is the one who seizes Paul. That's a better way to translate verse 12, is not that... Christ has merely been made, Paul has been merely made Christ, but that Christ himself has seized him, has made him his own, has called him to himself. He belongs to Christ. And because he belongs to Christ, he can continue. So it's not by our own works at all. You're reminded of Paul's own experience of being seized by Christ. He's seized on the road to Damascus as he is headed to persecute the church, to seek to destroy the church in Damascus, He is seized by Christ quite literally, physically, and he is called to run the race. He seized his heart, and Christ seizes your heart today. As you call upon him in faith, he seizes your desires, and by him alone you are made to pursue the resurrection life. It is by his work and word in your life. He is the power, the dynamite that projects you forward So life seized by Christ presses on towards everlasting life. We see it's by the power of Christ that you're able to do so. Uh, But what are you pressing on towards? We have to talk about that for at least a few moments. We're pressing on towards a future goal. That is what verse 13 and 14 says. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. That's verse 13. You see that Paul... In order to pursue a life that glorifies Christ, a life that is saved by Christ, we must press on. Obviously, we've already known by what power it's Christ alone, but how are we to press on? Paul says you are to press on by keeping your gaze forward, by keeping your gaze upon the, the prize, to not look back, but to look forward. Well, what lies lies behind Paul? What is Paul referring to? In the greater context of Philippians 3, Paul is talking about persecution. That even as he suffers, that in that suffering, he wouldn't be tempted to look back. To look back to what? To maybe his past successes. He's now in prison. Think of the difficulty. If I were imprisoned and shackled, not doing much outside of teaching from time to time, I, I might be tempted to navel gaze and look back of those churches I planted, to rest on those past successes, those past encouragements. Or, or perhaps, even as you draw this out even further, you might be tempted to look back, like Lot's wife, look back just one more time upon the city that she fled, and we see the repercussions of such an act, looking back on our own sin. Maybe you look back, or tempted to look back at your own failures, I am often drawn in my own mind's eye to looking back at my own failures and keep one up at night quite well. But we're not to look back. Paul is charging us to be grateful for the grace of God in the past, but to lay it aside for the present looking forward to the future. Sometimes we can even think of churches this way. Uh, looking back at the when this church was a great church or a better church. We can look back at the good old days. But Paul says to be focused on what is forward, what is ahead of us. Forget what lies behind. Look forward to the prize. I think a great illustration on that, that prize, we already have defined it as the resurrection life and what that, that means, complete perfection in the Lord Jesus Christ, both morally and eternally. Uh, but but think of how sports uh, figures, professional sports uh, players, as they look forward to the next season, whether they win or lose, they are looking forward. You, you think of of Michael Jordan or any of the goats. You know, you can add any of the greatest of all times in here. But even when they win, they don't rest on their laurels and dwell in the past. Uh, I I'm surprised with uh, the the work of Tom Brady and. And the Patriots, when is enough enough, I would often wonder with a man that has won so many Super Bowls. Uh, But if you talk to Brady after one of those Super Bowls into the next season, what is his focus? It's today, looking forward to this season. Even despite his past successes or his past failures, he's looking ahead. It always surprised me. Sometimes sports figures, as great as they are, they, they can almost know the outcome you think of Michael Jordan and some of his greatest seasons. I mean he could almost predict the outcome. He betted against himself and got thrown out of basketball. He knew the outcome in many regards for his his performance. But that didn't stop him from giving it all his all. You might think that because Christ is the power, that we might become laxadaisical in the work that is pursuing the prize, but like Michael Jordan, like like uh, uh, Tiger Woods, like Tom Brady. It doesn't matter. We we may know the outcome, but we continue to pursue it with all that we are because the outcome is so desired. The prize is so desired. We are drawn like a moth to the flame to it. We want the prize because the prize is truly otherworldly. You see that it is not on our own, even in verse 14, though, that it is by the call of God. He is the one that calls us up to receive... He calls us and, and, and we follow, we pursue the all that we are. But, but in this home life, I, I might have a, a question for you. Do you ever feel like you're running aimlessly? Do you, do you feel that you are often distracted in the Christian faith and life? Is it just going through the motions? You come here on Sunday, you get your hours fed, we have the Lord's Supper, you go home and that's good for another week. Uh, what does the, the Christian life look like for you? Does it seem aimless at times? Are you often tempted to glance back at the bygone eras, sideway glances at the runners that are running alongside next to you? Where is your energy invested towards? What do you invest your life in? Might be a good. Are you resting on your laurels? I was saved. I'm just going to coast through until the Lord takes me home. What, what, where, where do you direct all that you are? what are you pursuing? All these questions are great questions that come from this text. How are you running the race? It is a temptation for for young men, for young people in general to run really quick at the beginning and to peter out, to sprint. I've done many races, many 5Ks, and I start out way too fast for my own good. And I and by the end, 11-year-olds are passing me. I, I run way too fast to, Young people are that way, both within their running capabilities, but also the church. They want everything to be idealistically formed to their own imaginations or theological principles, and they sputter out quickly. But it's also a reminder for those who are are more seasoned, who have been running the race for a long time, that, hey, I've neared retirement. It's time for me now to rest a little, to slow down, to take out the lawn chair, and and maybe to finish the race at some other time, to to look back, or maybe even to look forward in a way that is even away from his kingdom, to get distracted by vacations, grandchildren, and the ilk. It's easy for us near retirement to say, well, now sit back in the pew and do nothing. But There's also a reminder that there's a real real uh, realization that we can't do all that we once were able to how do we set a pace? That's what Paul is saying here. We have to set up good pace. We have to learn how to run the race and to run it well. Uh, and a marathon runner knows how long his marathon is and therefore sets his pace accordingly. Christians know how long this marathon of of life is as they pursue Christ and they must run accordingly. We know that it will take at least me as in another 40 years or so, depending. I don't have good genes, and so another 40 years I have to prepare myself. I have to run this race for another 40 years. How do I set my pace right so that I might not burn out while not, when I'm 40 or might not take a nice lackadaisical rest when I'm 70? We have to learn to run the race. Every one of us, man, woman, child, youngest saint to oldest saint, Is called to press on to the future goal all of us have a work to do but in that last point we're called by a seized life to press on towards everlasting life in the last point we see that we are called on uh, to press on with thoughtful maturity there is a part of uh, mature thinking that perhaps a young runner Scott Edberg doesn't realize there is a maturity when running a race that is important And there is a maturity in running a race in the Lord Jesus Christ that's important. Look at verse 15 with me. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything, sorry, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Paul, at the end of his testimony to the church about his own life, turns the mirror around now and shows them their own lives. He seeks to use his life, though, as an example to them. And so we see that in this last idea, this last point, that Paul urges the people of Philippi, the saints of Providence Pres, to pursue, to pursue a thoughtful ministry themselves, to press on thoughtfully with maturity. But what are mature ones? If we were to translate that word maturity uh, quite simply, it is perfection, uh, you might say well is paul saying that we can be perfect in this life i mean just a few verses ago he said he was imperfect so what, what, but but he's using himself in perfect what, what does he mean seems confusing well what he is saying is those who are are mature in the lord recognize their own imperfection to be made perfect in the lord on this earth is to understand that you are imperfect and the lord is working through you that you will stumble in this race. You will trip. You will look back. You'll be discouraged. But know that the Christian, the mature Christian, the faithful Christian, will pursue, will continue in understanding their, not only their own limitations, but keep their eye on the prize. That even when I fail, instead of navel gazing about my own difficulties and imperfections, I pick myself up and I continue in the race. I continue. That's what a mature one does, it con- he continues. But not only that, he doesn't continue by himself, he continues alongside other believers. Uh, Paul is saying this isn't a race that you run alone. The people that you look to the left and right of you are not contestants you are running against, but like a marathon you are running with. They spur you on like I was uh, hiking up Halleck's Peak. They spurred me on. I would not have made it to the top if it weren't for the people that were alongside me. I would have turned back, I I guarantee it, because there were times in my mind I was so convinced to stop, to stop and to turn around, to cut my losses, to get back down, to rest, to sleep and to count my failures for the end of time, but it was the people that were around me that said, Scott, you just have to continue, press on, just another 10 steps. Those are the mature ones, the ones that keep their eyes on the prize and those who keep their eyes on the prize, helping one another, spurring one another to keep their eyes on the prize. Christianity, in other words, is not a a couch watching religion. You might be tempted even today to go home and turn on the PGA Tour and fall asleep in your recliner. That's what my grandpa does. Uh, You might be tempted to just sit down, relax, watch TV to enjoy all the great sports. But Christianity is meant for all of us to participate in. I'm starting to realize as I age the sports that I once loved, I must reserve myself to not play as hard as I once did. And you might be tempted to not play at all then. But that's not so for the Christian faith. As we age, we continue to participate. And in that participation, we continue the work of spurring on one another to the mature prize that we all pursue. But what does Paul say that he has attained in verse 16 in regards to this being thoughtfully mature? What does he mean? Let us hold true to what we have attained. What does he mean by that? It seems that Paul has not attained the resurrection life that he had once already said, but what, is he, what has he attained? Well, he understands the already-not-yet nature of receiving Christ, that he already has salvation in one sense, but he is continuing to live into it so that he might fully have it later. The already-not-yet motif is a famous theological framework within the Reformed tradition that understands that while we receive Christ now, the full consummation of that reception will happen later when we die and join Him. A great way to illustrate this is with barbecue. I, I these you'll have to live with these for the rest of my ministry here. But barbecue illustrations, I, I love to grill. And sometimes, as that meat falls off the rack of that rib after it's done barbecuing, there's a whole rack before me, a whole rack. I wish I could eat a whole rack without my kids and family taking some from me. Just a whole rack, no sides, just a whole rack. But as just imagine, this is my own mind's eye. A whole rack is in front of me, a whole platter of meat ready to be consumed, as, I, as I, I take off the ends that are almost turned into jerky, I, I eat those. There's an already not yet nature to that rack of ribs. It is already in my stomach, but it is not fully in my stomach. I will spend the next hour or so eating those ribs, and more and more they will be engulfed by my gullet. That's kind of how salvation is. It's like a rack of ribs. Uh, you, it's already not yet. You already have some. You have tastes of, of salvation here set before us, but there is a not yet aspect. You've not consumed all of salvation. You've not taken in all of salvation. You have attained it truly and surely, but you've not yet experienced it to its greatest delight. There is nothing of greater delight than a whole rack of ribs in a man's stomach. There's no greater delight for the Christian than salvation fully realized that's the mature thought it is already but not yet and that already spurs you on and encourages you to spur others on we must press on that is the whole point of this passage is to press on it's the encouragement that even in the midst of your own imperfection even in the midst of being dissatisfied with the work of Christ in your own life now, even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of of thinking back to the good old days, you must turn away from those and press on towards everlasting life. I remember when I reached Hallett's Peak, we all packed a little bagged lunch. I think they actually provided it for us. We were high schoolers. We didn't know how to, to pack our own lunches, obviously. And as we reached Hallett's Peak, I remember sitting alone. I, I had abandoned my friends. They were too slow for me. Uh, I, I painfully made it to the top, I, and I enjoyed a lunch. I enjoyed a lunch and just looked out at God, on God's creation. And, and I remember in that moment passages of Scripture that had been made new from that experience of God's creation, you think of all the passages on the greatness and the majesty of mountains and the immovable nature of them and the Lord casting them into seas. All of those verses were dwelling up in my mind as I ate my, my ham and cheese sandwich, looking out of the mountains in the midst of more mountains, and the prize was worth it. I remember feeling so encouraged by actually making it to the top. And as I went down, though, I saw my friends. They had not yet climbed over the glacier. There was a glacier that had to be traversed. They had not climbed up it, and they were feeling discouraged and even debating the same things prior to one hour that I had debated. And I remember seeing their discouraged faces and pointing them forward. Pointing them forward. The mountain is so close. You are just a mile away. You just have to get up this glacier, and then you're climbing on rocks, and you'll be on that mountain peak before you know it. You're almost there. And in that, they made it. They made it as I came alongside and encouraged, even as they looked defeated. And we are reminded that even here today. Maybe you feel defeated. Maybe spiritually you feel, count out, well, your sights might be too low. For the Christ that saves is the one that enables you to press on to finish the race that is before you. Press on. And then receive today, as we, re- we receive the supper, the grace to tarry on for another season. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, for your grace in the Lord Jesus Christ that we can attain salvation, at least even the taste of it now, today, through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We pray, O Lord, that you would confer to us grace here and that you would remind us of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ even today. Enable us, O Lord, to keep our eye on the prize and to press on towards the future goal of resurrection life. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.